Artemis endeavors to get more women and girls in the field and on the water. To support women as leaders in the conservation movement. To ensure the vitality of our lands, waters, and wildlife. Artemis endeavors to change the face of conservation. Welcome back to the Artemis Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Chance, and my co-host today is the wonderful Carly Kutnick. Carly, how you doing? How's it going, Ashley? Great. Glad to be here. Today, we are speaking to Kate Crump, who I'm really excited to talk to. I just want to preface, I'm going to let Kate introduce herself, but I'm just going to preface this with saying I needed a podcast guest, so I googled badass sportswomen. <laughs> Kate was at the top of a couple lists that came up, a couple top 10 lists. So I'm really excited to talk to her today. Kate, how are you doing? Hi, good. Thanks for having me. Can you tell us what's in your freezer? Right now in my freezer is a plethora of salmon from Bristol Bay. Um, that's where we have a lodge and I'm a fishing guide. And I have some elk from Montana in the freezer that my dear friend Shelly shot this fall on a hunt uh, we did outside of Rock Creek. And I also have, um, we have a pig that we bought um, from a local farmer here in, on the North coast of Oregon that we had a local butcher, uh, butcher up and we're sending that to Alaska for our, um, Alaska Lodge season so we can have a really good meats like that's kind of a hard thing to get in the remote area that we're at um and some uh some fish as well caught some lean cod and some black cod caught off the or north coast of Oregon here and then also a little bit of tuna that I brought back um thanks to my friends down in Venice Louisiana at Journey South Outfitters so many questions. Okay, let's start with the flying pig. <laughs> what What is entailed with shipping a pig to the part of Alaska that your lodge is in? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so in the past, uh, my husband and Justin and I have always taken up our wild game, um, like elk and venison, um, in Yeti coolers. Just checked it as luggage. Um and we get a lot of weird looks, but, um, you know, we're, we're paying the overage. We're trying to fill these coolers to like 99.9 pounds, um, to sort of supply us with that meat for six months. Um, with this pig and a bunch of our fish and stuff that we're going to be shipping up, uh, we'll actually take that to Alaska airlines in Portland and, uh, and they will ship it by jet to, um, of King salmon. Where, where we will hopefully retrieve it. Um, they have uh, freezers and coolers along the way um, for their cargo situations. It's logistically challenging for sure. I love how unique Alaska Airlines is and how they have to accommodate these for um, all of the clients and their customers. It's great. Yeah, it's pretty incredible um, that they fly into the town of King Salmon. Um, we have an old Air Force base, so we have... Um, a runway that can handle the big jets and cargo planes. And it's very much the hub for Bristol Bay and the Aleutians um, for supplies. Um, that's how most people get uh, anything, really. Um, we also barge uh, dry goods up 
Um, so we're currently um, doing all the planning and preparation for um, filling a container with building materials. We're actually filling two 20-foot containers with building materials, um, furniture items, dry goods, kind of specialty dry goods. Our um, chef is very much inspired by ingredients, so hence um, having a pig from a local farm um, butchered here and sending that up. And same thing goes for um, specialty flowers and things that are made here on the north coast of Oregon. Um, that's important to him to have to prepare great meals for our guests. So, um, so kind of procuring that stuff ahead of time. And then um, we'll have about four days later on this month where we have to load it all up. <laughs> Oh my gosh! I thought moving houses was a pain. This sounds like, and it this sounds like a full time job. Yeah, I really uh, wish I could just hire somebody else to do it, Ashley. But um, <laughs> uh, luckily, I get to do this too. Uh, it it is it really baffles people um, the logistics of um, of operating a lodge and fishing program in a remote place like um, Bristol Bay, Alaska. Um, I think some people are just like, why would you even bother? You know, um, it's like you said, it's just moving houses. Uh, it, it's sort of become who we are and what we do and just sort of part of the um, business. So you don't, I, I don't think I necessarily think about how uh, much of a pain in the ass it is. But um, when I start talking to like you guys, like, oh, yeah, this is kind of different. And um, <laughs> yeah, a lot of work. I want to I want to talk a lot more about your business and how that works and what you offer and how you got to the place that you're at currently. Um, but I think this is a good segue into you just telling us a little bit about who you are. Okay, yes. Um, so I am a I'm a fishing guide. I am a um, business owner. My husband and I started uh started our own guide operation in on the north coast of Oregon first around 2010 and it was pretty meager like we lived in a camper that was like parked on the on the road and we rented a house for our guests to stay at and um it's really funny to think about those sort of humble beginnings just trying to make it work and be fishing guides and offer our guests an experience where they felt really well taken care of um, and they had great food and a beautiful place to stay that was comfortable and also the opportunity to spend time with us off the water, breaking bread and really building a relationship. Um, and that just appealed to us so much more than doing day trips where we have this great, amazing time on the water and then kind of peace out, see you another time. Um, and that's been such a wonderful experience for us. Like we've cultivated like such wonderful guests that have become friends and, and really ultimately family. And it's grown into this operation where now we have a small lodge on the North coast of Oregon. We host four guests at a time in the winter months, January, February, and March, typically. And we have a chef and Justin and I guide, um, 
two guests a day and we're chasing winter steelhead, which is arguably one of the most um, edgy fishing endeavors you can do um, from weather to um, the difficulty of catching them due to diminished returns. Um, gosh, there's so many things that go into winter steelhead fishing. And, um, and so then Around 2015, we started our own guide business in Bristol Bay, Alaska, after working at a lodge for about seven or eight years, um, and then recently bought um, bought a lodge in Bristol Bay, something that we've been really working towards for about six years. Uh, so we, we bought this lodge in uh, 2021, and we spent the next, um, I think it was about seven months, figuring out how we were going to do all the things um, to make it what we wanted it to be for our guests. Um, and that is so a whole nother segment, I guess I kind of got off topic about who I am, but I think this is who I am. <laughs> um, it sounds like in this moment, it's very much who you are in a good way. <laughs> That's a great way to put it, Ashley. It is very much uh, consuming me at the moment. Um, uh, yeah, but why is the why is the question, who am I stumping me so much? It's a tough question, I think. I luckily am the one normally asking it, um, but it's we purposely <laughs> leave it broad so that you can fill in however you'd like to. Um, and maybe a good prompt, Kate, is like, where did you start? I started as maybe a young kid growing up on a farm in rural Virginia, and my dad uh, loving the outdoors. But it wasn't until I moved to Washington State and fell in love with fishing that I found who I truly am, which is a fisherman um, or an angler these days. I know we've like really tried to adopt that word change, but I sort of found myself in those first moments of going fishing for salmon. And my life hasn't been the same ever since, I think, um, really pursuing a, a life that is... Um, pretty unconventional, but a life that is very focused on being present and, and being present for myself and the people around me. And I find that most through fishing, um, and hunting as well. I, I certainly don't necessarily consider myself a hunter, um, mostly because I feel like I don't uh, dedicate a ton of my life to that, but I like to consider myself a harvester. <laughs> so, um, if the opportunity is there, uh, I really appreciate, and, um, it's very important to me to eat food or meat in particular that is, um, that I've gotten to be a part of the process. So, um, but I come from hunting roots. My dad was, a, is a, is a hunter, but honestly, he's kind of a harvester too. Um, lives in Virginia and Lena likes to shoot the plethora of whitetail on my parents' property. But I think that um, in sort of those first few years of really finding myself as a as an angler and and being able to really be very present, more so than I'd ever been in my life leading up to that point. Um, and I really started to realize that somehow I was going to make my life fishing. And I 
had no idea how that would work out, but I was given the opportunity um, or introduced to the opportunity to guide in, in Bristol Bay for the first female sport fishing guide. And, um, and she was probably the first sport fishing guide, female sport fishing guide in, in Alaska and definitely in Bristol Bay. Um, so she alone was sort of paving roads that, um, wouldn't have been available to me before then. And really at that time, there's no way that any of the other lodges would have hired a female fishing guide. Um, so that was such a great in and such a great opportunity. And that very much shaped everything that I do now, that, that opportunity to be a guide and sort of find this part of me that really enjoys and appreciates sharing how special these places are with other people and doing that through fishing. So sort of having a mission when you go into the outdoors, I like that. Um, you know, like even now and I'm, when I'm like going to go for a hike or something, I always have a mission. It's like my mission is to make sure the dogs are tired and happy or um, that that is like something that very much resonates for me. Um, yeah. Working, working for her um, sort of came to understand that, uh, that like it isn't necessarily about, the catching or the fishing. It's really about the whole experience and, and what you are um, cultivating with the people that you're sharing it with. Um, and I think that I've really built my business and who I am around that idea. I can definitely feel that in the way that you're talking about this whole trajectory. The thought occurred to me, I mean, you mentioned that fishing changed your life. Like it seems like in an instant almost. And I'm, but I also see or hear in you a lot of people stuff like relationships and connection and being present. And I'm curious if you think that there's any other vehicle that could have got you to, to this place of like being in a position to cultivate and foster all of that, or like, why, why is it fishing? Yeah. Why is it fishing? I think that for me, Fishing was probably the first opportunity where um, where I was super present. And I think in those moments of being super present, you're generally showing up for yourself and you're generally showing up for the people around you, right? And I think that fishing is very purposeful, right? And also you're, you're kind of like, tangling with something a little um more spiritual because you can't for the most part at least the a lot of the fishing that I was doing at that time it's it wasn't sight fishing so it's just like believing hoping that there's something under the surface of that water that you can't see but that you want to touch right like that and that in itself is a connection with something super wild and so the opportunity to to try to like make this connection with something extremely wild and also invisible is like I could be talking about like God or Buddha or anything right now, right? Like I, it, it's very spiritual, I think, um, and and that isn't like for hunting. I always have felt like 
it's a little bit harder to introduce new people to that because there's sort of this thing where we're not going to just touch this wild thing. We're actually going to like harvest this. We're going to take a life. And that's a little bit more grave, I think, than fishing where you don't not, you don't have to necessarily like take a life in this situation to be a part of it. And, um, and so I think there's, it's a little bit more like, uh, it has a little bit more entry accessibility for people kind of stepping into the outdoors. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that's borne out by the levels of participation that we see in fishing versus hunting by women right now, right? Hunting them, the numbers that are thrown around 30%, uh, of license sales are to women and, uh, excuse me, fishing is 30% and hunting is still just 10%. So I would say there's some credence to what you're, what you're saying. Yeah, I think, yeah. Mm-hmm. Hopefully this doesn't stay that way always, <laughs> but, um, at least to this point, I think one of the other things I'm curious about is, I guess what led you to Washington and even just what led you to your first time fishing. I imagine maybe you fished a little in Virginia, but um, I assume you're fly fishing, right? That's how you catch steelhead. Um, I am now, but I, I definitely started as a gear fisherman. Um, and um, I think a lot of people start there uh, and then maybe migrate into fly fishing. Um, I do have a couple of friends that have like never touched a gear rod before and when they do it, like, wow, this is really fun. Like, yeah, it's just different. It's just a different style. Um, but people tend to get uh, very religious about um, the method of fishing, you know, that there's only one way to do it and and uh, and, and very focused at, that that's the only way. But I think I think that that all the techniques are are challenging and, and fun in their own way. And I'm, I have a lot of respect for for it all. But I have. I have thought about this a lot. Like, how did I, um, how, how did I get out to Washington and how did I kind of fall in love with fishing? And the, it sounds a little mystical, but I have always kind of had this little beacon is the best way to describe it. Um, or like almost like a lighthouse. If you need a visual, like I have always sort of had this thing inside of me that when like everything's lined up I just know and I feel uh like very much um like I'm in the right place and so um from a really young age I was like I'm moving out west and and so then when I traveled around in the west and then went through the northwest Oregon and Washington it was like my beacon lit up like your home this is your home and I followed that, and I still feel that way to this day. Um, even as much time as I spend in Alaska, very much Oregon and Washington feel like home to me. Um, and the same thing with fishing. My friends took me fishing this day for salmon, and we we went fishing for coho. Um, and they were just so excited because they were running. And when we walked to the river on the way there, I sort of made fun of their um, waders. Cause they were pretty funny. Like I hadn't seen anybody wear waders before. Um, and, <laughs> and like, then we walked the river and there were these huge salmon swimming over really, uh, shallow shoals 
migrating upriver in a really small stream. And I had never seen fish that big before, much less um, watch people catch them, you know. And so I took pictures of my friends. I was super into it. My friend um, broke his fly rod because he had given me his spinning rod um, landing one of these coho. And I was so fascinated by that. And I didn't catch anything. Um, and I had such an amazing time. And I remember standing there just, you know, casting and not catching and just feeling like I had found my calling. And I think it wasn't until the next day, because I begged them to take me back the next day. And it wasn't until the next day that it really set in that I had definitely found my calling and that I would be doing this for the rest of my life. Now, I certainly didn't know what that looked like. Um, and the only thing I knew at that time was that I just be, would be doing it every day. So I did it. <laughs> and I was pretty unsuccessful, but... You know, there, there's a strong, strong learning curve. <laughs> that I so appreciate that story because I'm sitting here thinking like, okay, you found your passion. It's a, mm-hmm. you know, a male dominated situation, whether you're working or just recreating. And then you just go up, didn't get a job as a guide doing this thing that you kind of stumbled upon. And I don't know. I, I like stories like that. Yeah. Yeah. And it is, it is definitely like looking back on it now, it's like, was I just so naive and like, so sort of young and hungry and fueled by my passion for this? Or, um, was I, was I just like a pretty strong, brave young woman? I don't really know the answer to that. Like, um, but it didn't seem to deter me. And, um, I certainly remember feeling, uh, self-conscious at times and sort of like one of these things is not like the other a lot. Um, but it didn't stop me from continuing. And also I would say that I had a lot of men that I, um, kind of stumbled upon as well, like that, were really excited for me to be a part of it too. Um, and willing to share knowledge and, uh, be my friend, you know, and be my friend in that angling space. And I think, um, that is like a tribute to, um, to a lot of guys out there that are excited to see women, um, in the outdoors doing these things and really want to see them succeed and be successful you know, for, for whoever is out there that doesn't, there's probably twice as many that do. And, and I see that now with a lot of guests that really want their wives to get into it. And I'm such a vehicle for that because I help make them feel comfortable. I show them that it's possible and that there is a space for them too. Kate, I, I like that you kind of elaborated on uh, what you said earlier of how you um, really cultivate an environment as a guide to um, bring people along and bring people into the field. Can you elaborate even more on, I mean, what do you do with both with, with uh, maybe single female folks coming in? Do you also help guide some kiddos? Do you, um, what, what other ways do you help develop this environment? Yeah, great question. So 
One of my favorite, um, one of my favorite guide guests was this young kid named Oliver, and he was ten, and he came with his grandparents. Um, they kind of pledged to all of their grandkids at ten they could go on any cool trip they wanted to do, and Oliver was the first one, and he loves to fish, and he wanted to go to Alaska, and I've been guiding his grandparents for a really long time. Um, I consider them. I consider them family. And, and so I don't have kids and I'm not, I wouldn't say like I'm a kid person (laughs) Um, or that I'm good with kids even. Um, And so uh, I'm better with dogs, but Oliver just really surprised me because he was so enthusiastic and he was so focused and he was just at the age of 10 wanted to get, better and improve and was like willing to like focus and and put it in. And he was also extremely kind and sweet, um, like, you know, offering to let grandma cast before him and just as excited if his grandma caught a fish as if he did. Um, And so that, I don't get that many like young kids that fish with us. Like steelhead fishing is really not for young kids um and alaska there's no reason why um kids shouldn't come up but you really don't want to bring your kid if they're like under the age of 10 um mostly because they're big adventures that we're having you know um and there's there's like we're very close to wildlife i don't really want like a small baby bear cub you know, what I, like a little kid is kind of like a, a little bear cub really, like, that you have to like defend. Um, so we don't, I don't guide a ton of kids like under the age of 10, but the ones that I have have all been like pretty impressionable on me. In fact, another kid from New York City of all places, his name is George. Um, like what a different life he lives. He lives in, literally lives in New York City and like walks to school and and they walk to go get a Christmas tree on the the, the side of the um, the street, like all these experiences that um, are very different for me. And I'm, I'm very intrigued by them. But um, getting to share a very wild place like Bristol Bay with this young kid from New York City um, was like definitely also a highlight. And and then for him as well, when he did a bar mitzvah he actually raised money to um donate to the defend bristol bay fund like how incredible is that that's pretty darn incredible i will say i i want to come back to this we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our partners proas believes women hunt hard and deserve the gear to support their hunting and outdoor passions what sets Proas apart is our belief that women require performance outdoor gear for all of their hunting and field pursuits. Their layering systems are quite technical but philosophically simple. Optimal base layers, prime insulation layers, and durable shell layers to stop wind and water. Take pride in not being one of the guys. Howdy Artemis listeners. This is Aaron Kindle from NWF Outdoors. We know you love awesome conservation conversations. That's why we want to invite you to check out the NWF Outdoors podcast, where we dive deep into the issues, 
people, and places that showcase the best of the sporting conservation lifestyle. Guests include leaders, luminaries, and decision makers who define conservation and work tirelessly for fish and wildlife. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts or at nwfoutdoors.org. And we're back. So, Kate, before the break, you had mentioned, um, was it the Bristol Bay Defense Fund? Yes. Can you tell us more about that? For anyone that doesn't know about the proposed pebble mine, but there's the largest deposit of gold and copper found at the headwaters of two of our five main rivers that flow into Bristol Bay. And this is a huge deposit. Deposit. And in order to extract that, um, to kind of make it simple, they would have to create this huge tailings pond that would have sulfuric acid in it, uh, which is uh, very much a no-no for, for wildlife and clean water and all of these things. Um, and this tailings pond would be so big, you could fit the Empire State Building in. So a massive, um, a massive mine location and it is a very remote area so what is currently just wild lands with no roads this would then change the face of the landscape in this area forever um and so there's been a fight for a long time from uh local communities local tribes um conservationists commercial fishermen um sort of I think the majority of folks are like this is a bad idea like it's amazing that there's this huge deposit here but it's really not the right place um for a million reasons and so um there's been many um groups fighting this as sort of a coalition and defend first obey as part of the wild salmon center and the salmon state to um really kind of move the needle politically uh, as this uh, fight sort of moved out of the grassroots region of Bristol Bay into uh, Washington, D.C. And we've recently um, we've recently had a major win uh, where the EPA enacted uh, the 404C of the Clean Water Act, basically saying um, that the Pebble Project cannot go forward. So it's an amazing win. And and everyone in the conservation, everyone in the community has been celebrating. This is just so great for all of us. That is great. I feel like things like this are so wonderful to celebrate and then be ready for the next round, right? <laughs> because the, re- <laughs> the resource is still there. It's going to need to be defended probably forever. Um, but that's wonderful to hear that it's a most recent success. I know that. Yeah, you... that's so true, Ashley. Sorry, go ahead. Um, it's so true. It that deposit isn't going anywhere, and um, until we get some sort of permanent protections, um, it it really is still in jeopardy. But it is great to have this sort of looming threat that this is going to happen sometime soon. Um, kind of put to rest at the moment and um but it will be important to stay vigilant on it there's been um a lot of understanding that this will probably go into a legal battle but they feel very confident that it will stand strong for a while on another note um the conservation fund 
worked with Pedro Bay a Native Corporation, and they bought um, some acreage along the proposed road site out to the mine um, out to the mine site. And so because that land has now been locked up and um, and set into a conservation easement situation, that those areas can't be developed. So it's sort of kind of got them uh, from two sides, at least. Um, we haven't completely circled the wagons, but um, I'm, I'm feeling better about it than I have in a really long time. That's wonderful. I know that you are involved in a number of other efforts to protect, restore, enhance um, a lot of things related to salmon. Um, can you tell us a little bit about dams on the Snake River, like Crash Course? <laughs> um crash course i'm certainly not an expert but um so the snake river is the largest tributary of the columbia river and i feel like that's saying a lot um and the the columbia used to be this just plethora of salmon and they say they even had more than bristol bay and as a little reference point, Bristol Bay is the largest return of sockeye salmon, wild sockeye salmon left in the world and where most of the world um, gets its sockeye salmon. Um, wild sockeye salmon, I should say. It's very important to distinguish between wild and farmed. Um, so the Columbia used to be this like plethora of fish until we started putting up dams and essentially blocking off tributaries access uh, upriver for salmon and, and steelhead. Um, and then by putting in dams, we have flooded these areas where salmon would um, uh, would go to spawn. And so I think that's important for people to sort of imagine what uh, it did look like. And then imagine when you put up the dam, you create a lake behind it and you you cut off access. Even if a salmon could get there, you've cut off access. You've created a lake instead of a river. Okay. Um, on the lower, the snake used to get, I think like a third or more of the salmon and steelhead that were going into the Columbia. So a, a lot. And in the 60s and 70s, they built four dams on the lower snake. So right before it dumps into the Columbia. Um, and so by essentially blocking up the lower area for where most of, or a large portion of the salmon and steelhead were returning, um, we've sort of cut off their, um, not only their access to the upper river, but spawning grounds and things like that. Now, however, the upper snake river is still like a pretty intact, um, and pretty healthy system in the sense that there's a lot of available ground up there for salmon and steelhead to use for spawning. So removing those dams would really um, be one of the best solutions we could to salmon and steelhead recovery in the Pacific Northwest. And just for context, it, my quick Google search, correct me if I'm wrong, Kate, it looks like the Snake River goes, I mean, it's all the way from Wyoming through Idaho. I think it looks like it tips into Oregon and all the way up into Washington. Yeah, it's amazing. It's a very big system. So, yeah. So when you're talking about, yeah, just the Snake River is covering at least four states and, yeah, is a huge, huge watershed. 
that's so okay <laughs> sorry i lost i lost myself a little bit in thinking about okay doomsday all these dams in the snake river so what can be done or what is being done or are you trying to do anything around dam removal um i kind of feel like um like how are we still talking about this in 2023 and oftentimes we even like hear about somebody wants to build a dam and it's like wait wait, like the science is pretty clear on all of this um so uh, why does it feel like sometimes we're kind of stepping backwards um which i almost like find embarrassing really uh there is a, a pretty significant coalition that is uh, working to really push through removal of the sn- lower Snake River dams. Um, and they, it seems like we sort of take a couple steps forward, a couple steps back in this. And, and it's an ongoing f- ongoing fight. And I don't have any like necessarily big updates at the moment. Um, I am a board member of a group called Pacific Rivers. And it's a nonprofit that um, its mission is to protect and restore the watershed ecosystems of the West. And really, that vision is um, clean, cool water for all communities. And uh, and that's just a mission I can really get behind. You know, I feel like it's very hard to argue with um, with clean water. Everybody needs it. Everybody understands the importance of it. They might not understand or agree on how to best accomplish that. But if you really start leaning into the science, um, clean versus not clean is very clear. So um, so I, I love being on, on Pacific Rivers. They have this great storytelling component. Um, our... Our main storyteller for a long time is this filmmaker, Shane Anderson, and he has done so many great films, uh, Behind the Emerald Curtain, A River's Last Chance, um, Chehalis, A Watershed Moment. That was about how Washington wanted to put in a dam on the Chehalis River in this day and age, you know, in the 2020s. Like, this is uh, just bizarre, but his most recent film, the Lost Salmon is really chronicling um, the journey of the salmon towards extinction uh, and the genetic differences between spring and uh, and fall Chinook. And that is uh, really pushing a lot of conversations around um, ESA listing for Chinook salmon. So... Um, for spring Chinook salmon, I should I should clarify that there is been determined scientifically a genetic difference between the two. And so we are very much close to extinction on spring Chinook. Um, so how can we change that? And Kate, for our listeners, can you clarify um, to your, well, can you give us a little spoiler on the, the lost salmon? Um, what's the difference between the, the spring and what, it was the winter? Spring or fall? Oh, yeah. 
spring or fall. So, um, so springers are highly coveted um, Chinook salmon that come in the springtime. And because they're coming in the springtime, they're carrying this amazing amount of fat. And, um, and that's really why they're coveted by anglers and, um, and people who, you know, love a good fatty salmon. I mean, it's like very greasy, um, you know, when you, when you cook it, it's just this like kind of orange greasy off the salmon. It's very fabulous. Um, fish bacon. The- That's what's coming to my mind. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds <Yes>. delicious. <laughs> <laughs> it's fish bacon. Um, yes. And so they have this sort of extra fat reserve to make it, um, until they spawn. Um, so it'd be in the system a lot longer and then fall Chinook are coming in the fall. And it was thought for a really long time that the two, um, that it was just Chinook, one species. It's the same. It doesn't matter when they come in. But um, this uh, this biologist has done the research that there is actually a genetic difference. So the spring Chinook are genetically different from the fall Chinook. And so are they so different such that they're individual species or are they subspecies of Chinook salmon? Um, well, no, they're, they're not necessarily different species. Well, I guess that's a great question. I don't know. You stumped me. Gets into the, gets into the distinction of what constitutes a species. <laughs> Valid. Good yeah. point. Good point. <laughs> Carly, I'm, I'm still a fishing guide, not a scientist. <laughs> but you speak like a scientist. It's wonderful. Uh, I just have, um, worked with great people that have taught me a lot, um, but certainly no, um, no scientists. And I don't know the answer to that question, but, um, but it's significant that there's a genetic difference because it does mean that, um, that, that we should probably be working to try to prevent the loss of spring Chinook if the fall Chinook are doing okay, which that's, that's questionable, but, um, and there's probably things that we can do differently, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, okay. I feel like you outlined some of the, I feel like there's many more issues related to fisheries and waterways, certainly in the West. Um, but I, A, would love to link to all of the videos that you mentioned in the show notes so that our listeners can go and take a look at them. Um, yes. And B, I would love to hear from you, Kate, how you feel like people can engage and and contribute to these efforts. I, that's something I really, um, I, something I really struggle with because, um, it, it's hard for people to feel like they're making a difference or it's, it's hard for people to, um, really engage or get involved, um, because they don't know how. And I don't necessarily think that conservation groups have done a great job of of showing them how, um, or figuring that out. And one thing that I have learned is like when there are those take action alerts, it actually is powerful and it feels kind of silly. Like when there's an action alert, like just go sign your name and you put your address and your phone number and you check a box. But surprisingly, those make a lot of difference. And, um, it's sort of like being in those situations where you're just 
putting your name and 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 you're not even writing anything special you're just going with what the organization um suggested you're still like adding to the collective of people that think that this issue is important and um important enough to put their name in the hat and so one small voice one person really um is sort of joining hands with a larger amount of people saying we want this to be better um, so I really want to reiterate to people that it is, um, it is actually powerful to take action, to hit those links, sign your name. It takes a second. It's just so easy, um, for people and it is effective. So I think that's the thing I get from people a lot. It's like, well, does this even matter? Yes, is the answer. It does. Um, and for those folks that feel a little bit more passionate about it or say have a little bit more time, um, the next step would be to write a little personal note in there. Hey, I, and always from the heart, like, hey, I live in this area and these fish are important to me. Or, hey, I've never been to Alaska, but I appreciate that wild salmon still exist and are thriving. And so I don't want to see uh, this place um, ruined by a mining district. And it's super simple. It doesn't have to be. You don't have to talk like a scientist or anything just from the heart, like who you are and why it's important to you. Two sentences is fine. Um, so I always really like to let people know that that is such a simple, easy way to be a part of um, making the world better. And I also think, and this is um, this is like very personal, but the I definitely and truly believe that the best way to heal our world and um, it is to really start with ourselves. And um, and that is a little bit more difficult for people to swallow. But um, it doesn't have to be going to therapy or anything like that necessarily. But just being very kind to everyone that you run into. And even the person that isn't being kind to you, like, you know, you walk grocery store line and maybe the clerk isn't being very friendly you know and just kind of like putting the little extra effort in be like hey I hope you have a really nice day um those small touches I think that's actually how we make um it's it's maybe a little far-fetched but I think that's how we make our world a better place and I think that's how we make sure that we have um these wild places to go to because in turn when we're healing and being kind to one another then we're turning around and being kind to the um world around us amen oh my gosh (laughs) that was such a wonderful answer and i just want to yes reinforce what you said especially about the automated emails or like the scripted i have been pouring through those i just did one earlier this week about something that's coming up here in tennessee and staffers of representatives don't read all of those same same emails but they do count them so kate like you said that really does matter and i feel like we can get lost a lot of times in these grandiose visions of what we should be doing as an advocate and like how much we should know and it can be overwhelming and so i love that you talked about taking advantage of that small but impactful thing yeah, thanks. Also, what you said about being nice to people, even the people that aren't, I feel like especially those people, right? Especially those people that aren't super pleasant in the moment, like they probably need it most. So that was also really beautiful. 
I, with that, <laughs> transition us to, you You had talked about some of your younger guides and also about the first time that you went fishing and those were amazing stories. I wonder if you could tell us about one of your other favorite moments on the water. Oh, you got me, Ashley. You, you two are good at hard questions. You know that. Well, I say one of your favorite because I know singling it down to a favorite can be impossible. <laughs> um, well, I, um, yeah, I have so, so many good, uh, good times out there. So it feels a little on the spot to be like my favorite moment or even one of my favorite moments. I think, um, I had a really great moment last week, but let me, that would be easy to start with like the more recent times. Like, um, we have these three guests that have been fishing together, um, for a really long time, um, probably about 10 years and they, um, fish together in Alaska sometimes and they generally fish every year in Oregon together, um, and like, that's really the only time they see each other throughout the year. And, um, and so it's this guy from California and this couple from Wyoming. And the really great thing about this couple from Wyoming is they're a younger couple. So we've sort of gotten to see their life, um, like change and, uh, and grow and that kind of thing throughout the years. And f- so we have fished with her, um, when she's been pregnant with all three kids. And so she's was seven months pregnant uh, last week fishing with us uh, with her third child. And um, it's funny because they've all been girls. <laughs> so um, we've then also then the following year fished with all f- well two kids so far. So um, because um she's like breastfeeding and it's a young baby. So she just brings this baby fishing with us. And it's really neat because this guy from California, um, I've sort of adopted him as my river dad. I call him, um, I spend a lot of time with him. So, um, he like just loves that role that, uh, you know, we have this like new baby in the family and this is very odd. Like, it's not like, this is, See, these are the only people that have ever brought a baby fishing with us, right? So um, it's, it's it's wild. And it changes the dynamic, right? Because, like, we're not floating in boats, um, which is what we normally do when we're steelhead fishing. Um, so we're just, like, walking into places. Um, and we're taking a lot of breaks. And she's drinking a ton of water and breastfeeding and all these things. And, um, and like, the last the last daughter, I was like, Hey, why don't you let me like sling her on me so that you can actually go fishing? Cause like she and her husband would take turns, right? Like they're very much splitting that experience. But, um, you know, it's like, Hey, why don't like, I can, she's sleeping. Like I can hold her while you guys go fish. Like I won't be able to help her you or anything. But, um, and then I was like, like, Oh my gosh, I'm doing this. Like, um, I'm literally babysitting right now <laughs> and I took some selfies of me like with this baby on my front of me I got my waiters on and then she's in the background casting and it was um it was pretty special but so last week here we are and she is you know pregnant with their third 
daughter and um and seven months pregnant and we're on like day four or something and she's so tough and um such a smart lady and just so tough and um and so fun and but taking breaks you know she's like more tired than normal and more tired than everyone else and um and so we kind of sat in the boat after lunch and talked and um and the guys all swung flies through the run and and they were like oh we got we got a grab and went back through and got another grab and so um and so she uh she was like okay let's let's get out there but um we ended up indicator fishing from the boat so then she just have to wade and um and then she got that fish that they had all like they had all had a brief made possible encounter with and then she got it and it was this big beautiful female steelhead wild fish and it was really big and it was a long fight to get in and um you know it was it was so special and I got to be in the photo with her um with the fish and um you know like for me that was just uh such it was such a great experience and such a highlight to to share that and then one day you know I'll be able to share that with her daughter of like hey you were you were here for this one you know <laughs> that's really special very very neat mm-hmm. gosh yeah that's so amazing I, so this is like a full service guide business everybody I mean <laughs> they will hold your baby oh gosh I love that and then the situation as you described it like her and her husband taking turns just resonates with me so much right now because we've got a young daughter and that's basically how we recreate in turns while the other one holds her um so cool i thank you for sharing that story so i'm going to transition us to our weekly closer hits and misses uh basically what have you been aiming for and how did it go and we are going to start with carly Awesome. Well, I think we had a conversation a couple weeks ago, Ashley, about goose season, and I never actually went out uh, to to do any goose hunting. So I'm going to go ahead and call that a miss this year and uh, aim for next year. Fair enough. Misses happen every year, that's for sure. Um, I have a hit to share from actually the last couple weeks. We've um, had access to a property that has some kind of like farm like cattle ponds in the pastures on it and it's stocked with overstocked um with bass and some crappie and apparently a sunfish as well um and so my husband and I have been going out there some evenings with our daughter and just fishing I mean it's like it's like the a game that I used to play at our church festival when I was little where you like cast your pole behind a curtain and somebody pulls on it and then like close pins a little (laughs) paper fish (laughs) you reel it back in um that's what it's like and so it's really fun all the fish are super tiny because there's way too many of them so we've been eating the smallest fillets ever um but charlie has just been having the time of her life out there with us she's helped to quote unquote reel in some fish um and she's touching them and she pronounces fish so she's been talking about fish and I mean mostly what she does is throw rocks in the water but she really enjoys that so that's been a hit for us lately Kate what about you oh um well 
we uh, we've been working on buying the lodge, building the lodge, all the planning and guiding and everything for the last two and a half years, like nonstop. We haven't really um, taken a break, and so this uh, this year we had said let's we have to go on vacation. We have to do something together and have an adventure no matter what, um, no matter if it's bad timing. And so um, we booked a trip to Chile to fish for king salmon. And we are leaving on Saturday. And it is terrible timing because we come home on the 22nd and we have to go pick up a U-Haul the morning of the 23rd and pack the U-Haul with all of the stuff that we're going to load on a barge. And that has to be done by Monday. So it's like, it couldn't be worse timing. And that was one of the things that we said to each other is like, like no matter when we do this, it won't be good timing. And so um, we just have to make the plan and follow through and know that at the time when we made the decision, we were thinking of uh, our mental health. <laughs> so, um, so I don't know if this is a hit or a miss. I like, I think it's a hit but I'm afraid it's a miss. Um, but I, I, I think in my heart, I know that it, this is a hit and, um, I'm leaving, leaving Saturday with my husband to go on a real vacation. Pretty excited. Have a blast. That sounds like it. That sounds like an absolute hit to me. So, and it may cause <laughs> some stress on the back end. I'm, I'm sure you'll both come out of it mostly unscathed. So <laughs> thanks, Carly. I appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, life is happening right now. So props to you for not letting minutia, however significant it might be, get in the way of something like that. Thanks, Ashley. I appreciate it. Kate, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. I feel like this was a wonderful conversation, and I want to make sure that we get links to everything we talked about um, in the show notes so that people can know where to go or how to learn more about um, all the things that we spoke about. Okay, I'll make sure I get you the links. And um, thank you so much for having me. It's been fun to hang out with you both. Absolutely. Thanks for being a, an inspiration and in, in leading the way on, on the outfitting standpoint from Alaska. It's pretty extraordinary. Thanks, Carly. Thanks for joining us this week on the Artemis podcast. We hope you're having a great week. Until next time, be bold, stay curious, and get outside.